Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my great friend and amazing scholar, Dr. Tina Opie, to the guest chair today as we talk about her brand new book, Shared Sisterhood, that is available for pre-order now and officially comes out on October 11, 2022. Dr. Opie obtained her PhD in management from New York University's Stern School of Business and earned her MBA from the Darden School of Business at UVA. She is an associate professor of management at Babson College and was named a visiting scholar at Harvard Business School following her MLK visiting scholar position at MIT. She has consulted with a number of high-profile companies and regularly appears on and in a number of media outlets. Dr. Opie, welcome to Diversity Matters. Dr. Holmes, Oscar, thank you so much for having me. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. I believe that the PhD project is important to myself and other students for a plethora of reasons. I've often struggled in, in certain organizations where I was tolerated but not celebrated. And I met so many amazing people, successful people, a Native American, Latino, African American, and they were all interested in the same thing. But the PhD project provides kind of like a resource, a platform for us to collectively come together on this journey. That's one of the reasons I love the PhD project is because of the consistent support they give to all of us. It was only appropriate that for our season three finale, I invited yet another rock star from the PhD project. Dr. Tina Opie, I can't wait to talk about your new book, Share Sisterhood, you co-authored with Dr. Beth Ann Livingston. But before we get started, I wanted to share a funny story about us that you likely have forgotten. Oh, Lord. <laughs> We've known each other for years now since we were PhD students. And the year I ran for vice president of the Management Doctoral Student Association, so I think this was probably around 2010 or 2011, we were in the business meeting and no one would put up a nomination to run against me. And you were like, hold on now. I love Oscar and all, but we need some other people to step up to run so that we can have a full slate of candidates. Wow. So no one stepped up to run against me. It was a testament of your commitment to taking a stand, pausing <laughs> normal operations and making sure everyone had a voice and felt included. And my sister, you are doing it even more on a larger stage today with your new book, Shared Sisterhood. And I am so, so proud of you. So, Tina, let's get started. Oscar, thank you for that story. And I had forgotten it. So <laughs> I forgot about that. Lord. OK. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so before we delve into your book, you hit us hard right from the start of the book with Kim McLaren's now famous quote. This is what Black women know. When push comes to shove, white women choose race over gender every single time. Please tell our listeners why you chose to open the book with this quote and how you, a Black woman, and Beth, a white woman, reconciled this. That is a great question, Oscar. And I may blow your listeners' minds because Beth, my white co-author, is the person who came up with the idea of sharing that quote at the beginning of the book. And... One of the reasons why white women choose race over gender every single time is because of the way that power structures our society. Whiteness, that's a privilege. That is going to get you far more than saying, hmm, let's get all the women together. Okay, Black women, Latinx women, Asian women, let's all come together because we're women. It's like, no, I'm a white woman. That gives me proximity to white men 
who are the power brokers and holders throughout the history of the world, not just the United States, but the world. And sometimes organizational leaders, when I go to consult with them or conduct research, they want to push back on that idea. And so I say, well, let's just look at your affinity groups, okay? When you have women, white women's groups, that's what I'm going to call them. Those are typically where the white women come together around race. Now, they co-opt the women's affinity group because they do that. Black women, Asian women, and Latinx women go to the racial ethnic affinity groups because the women's affinity groups have been co-opted by white women who choose race over gender. And so it's just a really amazing phenomenon to observe. And I want to give a shout out to Dr. Beth Livingston for starting us off because we also wanted to signal to the reader, this is not your ordinary book. Shout out, Beth, and thank you for suggesting that opening because it, it really grabbed me. It was a really powerful opening, and I really do love that quote uh, because it speaks volumes. So I also love this concept of shared sisterhood. So how did you come up with this term and know that this is what you wanted to title the book? Yes. So I've actually been thinking about working on shared sisterhood for over 10 years. And the first time I ever heard the term was actually at the Academy of Management there was a PDW with some colleagues. I won't name them on air because I don't know, but we all were talking about this term. And I was asked to develop the term. So it was sort of this expression. And then I went and I wrote a white paper on it. And I just, it didn't gain any traction. It didn't really make sense to me. I start, I met Beth through Charlotte Hurst, actually, you know, Dr. Charlotte Hurst. And she vouched for Beth. And then I realized the reason why the white paper wasn't gaining traction is because if I was going to write a book about shared sisterhood, I needed a sisterhood to create it. And sisterhood, so I'm sisters with my girlfriends, people who are similar to me, Black women. Shared sisterhood is when you work together across difference, develop authentic connections, and then link arms and work to dismantle systemic inequity. So shared sisterhood is why the idea of it, the philosophy behind it, the story behind it, it's, it's very meta, right? Beth and I came together in Shared Sisterhood to write the book on Shared Sisterhood. So that's how we chose the title and that's sort of the meaning behind the term. Great, I love that story. And I love the idea that you talk about the power of people vouching for you, right? Yes. And I know you talk about it in the book as well that increased the likelihood that the shared sisterhood that you and Beth have kind of formulated, but also central to the book, you all talk about this dig and bridge framework. So, you know, a lot of people probably can immediately think about how they can use it in their personal life, but talk to us, kind of explain to us, how can we use this dig and bridge framework in organizations to make meaningful changes? toward DEI goals that you know, we have in organizations, as well as if you want to get more personal and talk about you know, some of the preconceptions that you had to dig and bridge through and how you can advise others to do that work to form more authentic workplace relationships, right? Which are a bit different from the personal relationships that we make. That's a great question. If it's okay, I'm going to flip how I answer the question. Sure. I'll start personal and then build up to organizational. So first, so dig is about surfacing the assumptions that you have about identity. So how you came to think about your own racial ethnicity, the ethnicity of other people. And Bridge is about connecting with people authentically. And by authentic connection, what Beth and I are talking about is a an interpersonal relationship characterized by trust, risk-taking, empathy, and vulnerability. 
And we define all of those terms in the book. So in terms of dig, I mean, I'd like to use the story of Beth and I. I mean, Beth approached me again at the Academy of Management, and most of your listeners know what that is. But for those who don't, it is the major convening association and organization for scholars of management. So this is doctoral students, faculty, lecture, everyone you can think of. They convene. There's tens of thousands of people who meet every year. And I had just finished giving a paper, presenting a talk on a paper, a research paper I was working on. And Beth skipped up to me, literally said she skipped on up to me and she was way in my personal space. And it's funny, people, a lot of people don't know this about me, Oscar. I'm extroverted, but I'm not as extroverted as people think. I like to be extroverted behind a podium. But one of my worst nightmares is when there's a mixer and it's a room full of a thousand people and you have sort of a bunch of superficial conversations. That drains me. I always end up in the corner with four or five people for two hours who were just... So when she approached me, I was sort of like, I need to get to my hotel room and be by myself. And she came up to me and she was very persistent though. And then I found out that she and I both knew Dr. Charlotte Hurst. And Charlotte could vouch for Beth's authenticity and how she really walked the walk. She was not, I'm, I'm sorry to say, my experience at that point, a typical white woman in the academy was smile in your face, but then take credit for your ideas. Was smile in your face, but then when the research you know, budget comes up, mm, I don't know if we need to focus on DEI. Maybe we should focus on things that are more general. So that had been my experience in the academy with white women up to that point. And so I wasn't, I was reticent and I had to dig because one of the things that I noticed as Beth persisted was I was holding her at arm's length. And so dig, I had to understand what was it about this interaction that made me be distant? I had to check myself and there's a dual edged sword to that because on one hand, those protective measures make complete sense. It's adaptive. In an environment where racism and anti-Blackness are rampant, like the academy, it makes sense to protect yourself, to gird your loins, so to speak. But the flip side of that was, was this one individual, Beth, was she doing anything that warranted me not trusting her? And the answer was absolutely not. In fact, she was doing exactly the opposite. She was demonstrating herself to be trustworthy. So then began a series of small tests where, you know, would she show up if I invited her? Would she be honest about this? What were her thoughts on things that were happening in the, you know, with social justice? And then we began to work together. I invited her onto a couple of papers. And then a couple of years after that, I said, hey, look, I have this shelved white paper on shared sisterhood. Would you like to join this project? And the rest is history. I love that story. And and you had a line in the book that just made me scream. I was like, oh, my God, please teach the people. <laughs> so I'm going to share that line in the book. And I think it relates really well with the story that you talk about how your relationship with Beth kind of blossomed. But you have a, a line in the book that says, sometimes white women connect with who they believe their Black friends to be rather than who these Black women actually are. And I was like, this hits hard because it's almost like that person who says, oh, my best friend is Black, right? It's like this idea that they know us mm -hmm. and they don't really understand that they may count us as a friend, but we don't count them as friends, right? And they just get the quote unquote professional cordial us. And your 
whole journey through this friendship with Beth, I hope elucidate for everyone who reads this book and our listeners that this is a very important concept of being self-protective because of experiences that we all have, but also what mutuality in terms of friendships really mean. And to stop trying to co-opt the friendship of like using us as some type of social capital to, again, be instrumental in pushing them forward. And so, again, that line just really just <laughs> made me scream. Yes. And, you know, when, when we were writing the book and that line in particular, well, I want to say a couple of things. That line in particular was really important because I was friendly and cordial. I'm a friendly person. I have a big, pretty smile. People will think- I can vouch for you. Yes, you are. <laughs> you will think, you know, I'm warm and effusive, but there's an inner sanctum that very few penetrate. But I have been paraded out. Oh, here's, here's the Black faculty. Here's the Black advisor. Here's my Black friend. But what they don't realize is when I go home, you know, I may call you other Black faculty. We're like, can you believe what just happened at this academy? You know, because we all talk about it. And so shared sisterhood is about getting beneath that. I do want to say shared sisterhood is, I use the word friends, but shared sisterhood is different than friendship because the center, the focus of shared sisterhood is the value of equity. We talk about power. And you can have a friend and you never talk about power dynamics. You never talk about the history or the construct of racism or anti-Blackness. So these two things are distinct. Now, Beth and I have become friends, but the basis, the foundation of our relationship was equity and her seeing my full humanity. She saw that I wasn't just a caricature. And that's the final thing I want to say about this line. For your white listeners, you may find that you are befriending Black women, because they're nurturing, they're embracing. That's a mammy stereotype. And I, I'm six feet tall. I have, well, I shouldn't, I have large features. Let's just say that. And people like to come in and hug and feel comforted. Are you really interacting with Tina Opie or the caricature that you would like me to be that makes you feel safe? Dr. Kesia Thomas has the whole philosophy on pet to threat. I have definitely experienced that. When I'm warm and effusive and embracing, I'm sort of a pet. As soon as I raise my hand in the meeting and say, for the past three cycles, we've had all white finalists. Oh, I'm a threat. I'm a threat. And that becomes a challenge. So the distinction between friendship and shared sisterhood is important. And then questioning yourself. If you find that all your Black friends, all your Black women friends, They're always pleasant. You never hear any concerns that they have. You might want to question whether or not you're authentically connected. Absolutely. And again, make sure you hear that and stop using us as, again, like legitimacy for for yourselves. Yeah, because that's what it is. You want to enter into a relationship to make yourself feel better, not because you're interested in getting to know my heart and mind and spirit. So we got we got to work on that. We got to work on that. And shout out to our dear friend and mentor, probably mutual mentor, Dr. Keisha Thomas, for her work from Pet the Threat. So if you if you haven't heard about that, it's, please please check her out. She just does fabulous work and been a mentor to many of us along the way. So another story that you tell of the prejudice that a lot of women faced earlier on this country of particularly the famed civil rights leader, Ida B. Wells Barnett, the prejudice that she faced in the women's movement when white women leaders 
save for two brave white women, did not want to march with her. Didn't want her to be up front, you know, wanted to put her in the back. And this was in the 1913 parade. And so do you know of other examples that you can share with us other than Ms. Wells Barnett case that, you know, these white women were going against the racism of their time to create this shared sisterhood so that we can have more examples of, of other role models doing this work? Yes. So the Ida B. Wells 1913 suffrage parade is a wonderful example of white women coming to the aid of a black woman. And another example I'll use, because honestly, Oscar, before doing the research for this book, I didn't know much or hadn't even heard of some of the people, but Florence Kennedy and Gloria Steinem come to mind. And many people think of Gloria Steinem as she's an icon. She is an icon of the feminist movement. She helped to found Miss Magazine. Well, a Black woman was right alongside her. And in some instances, uh, I think Miss Steinem would say in front of her, Florence Kennedy. And Florence Kennedy was an attorney. She was someone who really pushed for Black women and white women linking arms to fight our mutual oppression and general oppressions around the world. And what was interesting to me, and this is a slightly different answer than what your question was, what was interesting to me is in the Black power movement, obviously, there was a lot of distrust of white women. But because of the way that Gloria Steinem showed up with Florence Kennedy in public and in private, Florence Kennedy had an authentic connection, from what I can tell, with Gloria Steinem. And at one of the Black Power events, Florence Kennedy brought Gloria Steinem because what she was trying to do is say, look, we need to help each other and we need to intermingle our movements. Because if we think about it, oppression if you turn this thing around, we're, oppression, racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, it's part of one huge elephant. We're all seeing different parts of it. And so Florence Kennedy brought Gloria Steinem to the Black Power Movement, and there were some Black women who were opposed to that. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes because I can see both sides, but I was really impressed with how Florence Kennedy said, Mm-mm, Gloria Steinem is going to stay here because she is the real deal. She can help us. Gloria Steinem has traveled the world doing these, you know, going to India, being in Africa, working with indigenous people. She, to me, seems like one of the best examples of a white woman who is doing this work. I mean, and people like Alice Walker, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks have close connection with Gloria Steinem. Need I say more? I mean, those are our forefathers. So for me, There are examples. The cool thing is, though, Beth is also an example. You don't have to be an icon. Well, Beth is an icon, but you know what I'm saying. Gloria Steinem is a whole different level. You don't have to be that big. So for women who are listening, look around your workplace. Are there Black women? Are there Black people? Are there Asian women that you can help? That you can help. But we should talk, though, Oscar, about the difference between an ally and an accomplice and a co-conspirator, so that when you help, you're helping in an informed way that actually benefits the people you're trying to help. Yes, yes. So let's talk about that. Again, our great mentors and great beautiful friends, Dr. Stella Como and Dr. Ella Bell's work. So let's talk about, break it down for us, the difference between allies, co-conspirators, and all of that. Go there. Yes, yes. So doctors Ella Bell and Stella Como personally know them, as, as Oscar mentioned. Dr. Tiffany Janet, who I've not yet met, we're friends on LinkedIn, though. She also has contributed to the conversation 
around the difference between three terms that many people use interchangeably. The first is an ally, and that is someone who believes in equity in theory, but they're not about to sacrifice anything. So listeners, those are the people who during the summer of 2020, when George Floyd and unfortunately many others were murdered, these are the people who went out and bought White Fragility or How to Be an Anti-Racist. Okay, they bought those books. They may have read them, marked them up. They may have even had book club discussions, but then it stopped. Okay, they didn't take it back to the neighborhood or to the workplace. The next level is an accomplice. And that's someone who also believes in equity and who's willing to actually make a sacrifice and do something, but it tends to be on their terms. So the example I like to give is a male accomplice might say something like, women, I know y'all are underpaid. You all need to go on strike. And the women are like, wait a minute, uh, I have to feed my family. I can't go on strike. But the male accomplice says, no, that is what you all need to do. So he may pursue that path, but that's without consideration of what the women actually want. The platinum level, the premier level is a co-conspirator. And that's someone who believes in equity in theory, who's willing to sacrifice, but their sacrifices are predetermined by the voices of the people who they want to help. So this would be where the women say, what we want is a salary audit and we want it to be made public. So a male co-conspirator would go into a space where there are no women and would say, I want, not the women told me to tell you, but I want a pay equity study and I want the, pub the information to be publicized so that he is using his social capital, his political capital. He's putting his money where his mouth is. And notice he's con authentically connected, hopefully, with the women. And he's pursuing collective action, which is where we work together to dismantle systemic inequity. Thank you so much for elaborating on that for us. And, and so let's go back to, again, another poignant example from your book that you highlighted the backlash that Glennon Doyle, a white woman, right, faced when she first tweeted about leading a conversation on race with white women and how being called a racist was so terrifying and like the rock bottom for her. So I'm so interested. What is your take on this pervasive narrative, right, that white people have this unwieldy fear around being called racist and how it's the worst thing that could happen to them. Yeah, I don't buy it. I mean, I, I, I really, I'm because I think Lynette Doyle talks about it. How she says, you know what? I was so deathly afraid of being called a racist, but that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is the enduring racism. And so that is the critical message. And, and now, so let me be a little bit more empathetic. I get it. You know, I'm a Christian person. I've been called homophobic. That can feel horrible. That can feel, and I'm like, wait a minute, do you know me? I'm not homophobic. Well, because you're Christian, you're homophobic. So that might be what some people think. But even then, how can I dig? How can I bridge? Because the bottom line is, these are people who have historically been marginalized. And okay, I can do a lot more than just recoil because someone has called me a name. And the same thing for Glennon Doyle. And I think she got so many props afterwards. And we focus on her in the book because it's an example of what to do. So she, you know, I won't go into the whole story, but basically she got called in by some Black women when she made a very public, she was trying to help. She was trying to do a good thing, but she went about it in a way that sort of uh, made some Black people, well, it was exclusionary because it was white people talking about racism. And Black women called her in and some white women and she course corrected. And then she reflected on it and she talked about it. She wrote about it. So she didn't bury it under the sand. And that to me is the critical lesson. I trust, I don't even, I haven't even met her yet. 
I trust her more than I do some white women I know because she was willing to be so transparent about the mistake that she made, what she learned, and what. And now she does things differently. And that's the takeaway. You will make mistakes. You may be called racist or sexist or homophobic, but what you gonna do? Pick up your marbles and go home? If that, listen, my people have been beaten, bloodied, attacked by dogs. If you can't handle name calling, you need to really check yourself because there's no way you're going to be of any assistance to me, to Oscar, to anybody else. If somebody calls you a name and you're like, oh my God, that's it. You need to toughen up. I agree. I think it was just a great example. Uh, shout out to Glennon Doyle for reflecting and going through the discomfort so that she can grow. But it's a, I'm glad she said it. It's a great lesson, right? It's You cannot use this facade to basically just shut down progress, right? It's like, yes, we can understand the feeling of not wanting to be name-called, but again, step out of yourself, remove yourself from this situation. It's like, it shuts down so many different things because it's like, again, once again, we have to do the emotional labor to attend to your needs to make sure you feel better. And it's just like, stop it. It centers the group, the collective that is doing the oppression. So meanwhile, I'm bleeding to death. You got a paper cut and you want me to stop and, and attend to your paper cut while I'm bleeding to death. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. Thank you. So talking about this oppression, right, and, and, and how we center different people, it really represents power. You know, if you have power, you can do things. But why do you think it's so hard for the most powerful people, right, to engage in this type of risk-taking and use their power to speak up or intervene in material ways to make things more equitable for others. So I think one of the reasons why people with the most power can sometimes be risk-averse, there are multiple reasons. One of them is they don't want to give up anything. They've structured power and the world as a zero-sum game. So everything that, that I gain or you gain is a loss to them. And people are greedy. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and you are valued based on how much money you make, how much money you have. And people don't want to lose. They think that they're going to lose money. So that's the first thing. So there's, there's some greed. There's some self-protective issues in there. I think one of the other reasons why people don't want to give up power, we define power in the book as access to and control over resources. We don't use the term majority and minority. We use the terms historically power dominant and historically marginalized. And power dominant are people who've historically had control over access and access to resources and marginalized are people who have not. So I just wanted to define that. In psychology, you know this, Oscar, we talk about approach and avoidance. And I think because of the way that people structure power as a zero-sum game, it primes an avoidance stance where you're afraid of losing something, where you're trying not to lose something. And we know from psychology that can make you less likely to engage with other people. It can make you less likely to try creative or innovative approaches or new approaches. Instead, if you can switch to an approach stance, which is where you're trying to benefit from something positive, attain something that can help you as opposed to avoid something that will hurt you. And that is what we're trying to get people to think about with shared sisterhood. The thing that is worth having first is introspection into yourself. Aren't we tired of lying to ourselves? Seriously, let's be honest, soberly look at yourself, hold it up, examine it, and really try to figure out where you're coming from. The second thing that's worth it is authentic connection. I can say with Black people, we are worth it. If you don't have close, authentic connections with Black people, you are missing out, period. Look at the culture around you, from music to movies, to fashion, to hairstyles. 
I mean, Black people are innovators. And at an individual level, I mean, some of the funniest human beings that I know are Black people. <laughs> I mean, and that's not, that's no shame to Latinx or Asian. I'm not, this is, I'm, I'm proud of myself. That's another thing that I want to say. Me uplifting Black women and Black men and Black people does not mean I'm putting anybody else down. Absolutely. And it is different, by the way, when white people uplift, because if white people uplift white, white people, which has been happening, when you say white power, that means something very specific right. and it has a different feeling. So we should examine that as well. Oscar, you may have to edit that out, but I just had to say <laughs> I just had to say that because it's not this. People say, well, why can white people uplift themselves, but white people can't uplift? Well, mm, there's some history behind why that can be problematic. So I'll, I'll stop rambling at this point. <laughs> no, no problem. So... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm like, white power means something different than black power. It just does. It does. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I do agree with you in the terms of not that we don't see white people lifted up because we see it all the time, right? Exactly. We, we see it. And we see it, white people lifted up in many productive ways. But what you are referencing is the unproductive ways <laughs> in which, quote unquote, white power is celebrated and lifted up. And we can see it if we just look at the January 6th insurrection on our country, right? And so, yes, there is a distinct history behind the difference between those things, as well as distinct outcomes when we see these types of things happen. All right. So I want to go back to your relationship with Beth, the authentic relationship that you all have developed. And again, through the process of digging and bridging, you talk about, you know, the reason why you were a bit hesitant to open up more is because of the racial trauma that you've experienced that, again, many of us can relate to that we experience all the time. And so, yes, you dug and bridged, and that's great. But I also want you to talk about, at least for our organizational leaders, this racial trauma piece so that they can know that it exists. And what's your message to the leaders regarding the impact that this racial trauma can have on people of color? One of the best ways for me to illustrate workplace racial trauma is to share a personal story. So I was working in exec ed and Oscar has seen me dress. I have a sense of style. I have a clear sense of style. I was dressed up particularly to a higher level because I was in exec ed. I had a meeting. I was at the printer because the administrative assistants can do your copies and everything, but I hate, I, I'm like, I'll do it myself. So I'm at the printer and it's not working. And this white woman rushes up to me. She goes, oh my gosh, I'm so happy that you're here. Please, thank you, God, fix the printer. And can you also fix the scanner or something, she said. And I looked at her and I said, I took my head, I swept it from my head, down my body to my feet. What about this made you think that I was the printer maintenance person? And she turned red. Oh, but, but I said, you need to check your assumptions because... I think it's because of my skin. I'm black. You assume that I, so, but, but no. So, but I didn't end it there. I went and talked to her boss's boss because I happened to have a personal relationship with her. And I said, let's call her Claire. I said, Claire, girl, you don't have to talk to this woman right here because I could have been anybody. And I am somebody. I am somebody. Right, right. I need you to train your team so that they know better. So I go to my meeting and I come back out and I happen to be in the meeting with another black woman faculty member. So the two of us are about to leave the exec ed building and marching down like Sophia in color purple comes 
the head, the head of exec education at the time, no longer there, but the head of executive education at the time. And she says, I'm mad at you because you made my girl cry. The black woman professor is like, what are you talking about? Tina was the victim of that. Cause I obviously, the three of us go sit down. And by the end of the conversation, my black coworker and I have been able to get this woman straight. But what was funny is she wanted the head of exec education wanted me to, I don't know if she's going to pay me or not. It sounded like she wanted me to do it for free. She wanted me to train her team on microaggressions and all that stuff. And I remember saying, I don't know if I said this directly to her, but I said, if that had been a sexual assault, like a sexual microaggression where a woman was asked to go get the coffee in a room full of men, would those men come back to that woman and ask her, come in front of us and teach us how not to be so sexist? No. But Black people, what I like to say, Black people at work are expected to drink poison, smile when it's going down, and then have the composure to articulate why it's harmful to the people who made them swallow, who gave them the poison. That is racial trauma encapsulated, where it's happening all around us. And many people may say, well, Tina, that's just a microaggression. Well, the initial incident was, you know, that was offensive. But what exacerbated it was the leader's reaction. She had flipped. She was blaming me. And that's what can happen in the workplace. When racism or anti-Blackness or sexism or something is surfaced, when you dare to speak up, you are now ruffling feathers. And sometimes leaders don't work like that. So the first thing is leaders believe people when they report those incidents. Believe me. You need to dig before you react. Had she paused, she would have recognized, wait a minute, Tina is the one who was, she's not, she's the victim, not the perpetrator. The perpetrator was the woman who was crying. And we can talk all about the weaponization of white women's tears for another episode. But she should have realized that. And then the second thing is, check yourself, which if, if you change the identity groups, if you wouldn't ask a woman to teach a group of men how to be less sexist when she had been the subject of sexism, then why would you think it's okay to ask Black people to train a group of white people who have perpetrated racism? Connects to this whole idea that Black people may feel less pain, that we're tough, that we can handle it, that it's not a big deal. It is a huge deal. And you, your organizations are losing talent. The cure for cancer may very well have quit because they were tired of being told that the ideas didn't matter. By the way, shared sisterhood was initially, you know, the reaction was, I don't know if this is going to resonate. I don't know as much of a place. Well, I think that person might be regretting saying that. Right, right. It is resonating loudly with all of us. And I'm glad you shared that story because so many of us have those types of stories. Again, we need uh, we need another episode because my God, white tears. I mean, the, the stories <laughs> we could tell around white tears and how those tears are used to shut down advancements and conversations and are weaponized against us, again, when we're the victim of these things and and how, again, it comes out that we're expected to be the one drying their tears. And, and- Listen, Oscar, what I say is you guys can't see me because you're listening, but I have a little tissue here. When white women or people, when they start crying in meetings, when they have done something, I'm like, here you go. Dry your tears and let's keep talking. Because what I'm not going to allow 
is for this to be hijacked. And, and there, Ella Bell and Stella Incomo's book, Our Separate Ways, talks about some of those things. It's a power play. It is a power play. I don't care. You may actually be upset, but you have been trained and conditioned that if you get upset in the workplace, it can cause things to rebound for your good. How do I know that? Because as a Black woman, I have had reason to cry, but I do not. I go upstairs to another floor and cry in the bathroom and get myself together because I have been conditioned to know if I cry in the workplace, oh, she's incompetent. She's too emotional. She's not going to be a good researcher. It's a social conditioning that white women have had so that they know that they can cry and that it will actually lead to power. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's a social conditioning. Listen, people, right? Because it's this idea that everyone needs to save white women. Yes. And it's immediate, the response that they supposed to get. And and it is, as I said, a paper that I wrote, it is killing us to deal with this. It reminds me of Zora Neale's Hurston powerful quote, if you are solid about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. That's right. And it's, it starts as early as four, five, six years old on the elementary school playground. And my children have been subjected to the same thing. Same thing. So, and in your son, I mean, you know, anyway, let's right. not get into that because that can really set me off. Right, right. No, I, I trust me, I totally understand. So, do men have a role in shared sisterhood? And if so, what is it? Listen, anybody can be a sister regardless of gender, okay? And I would say men, and I'm using men as the category of the gender that has historically had the most power throughout history, absolutely have a role to play. The term shared sisterhood as a title of the book was intentional because it flips the idea of what you need to be successful in the workplace on its head. We typically hear masculine things like, assertiveness, being tall, stomping your fist, or et cetera, as being the things that are necessary and competitive to get ahead in the, in the workplace. As a man, if you're willing to authentically connect with me, your empathy, trust, vulnerability, and risk-taking, we're lauding those as the kind of leadership traits that are necessary in the workplace. And I mean, look at the world, in the world, in the world. So men you are particularly needed in shared sisterhood. Go back to the example I gave of the man. You guys are going to be in rooms where people, other people, people who do not identify as men cannot be. You're there in much greater numbers. What would it look like if men who were authentically connected to people who didn't identify as men vouch and and use their political and social capital to help elevate those people? We would have a different world. If all men did that right now, in a year, think about COVID. We were able to quickly restructure our businesses. If all the men in the world, even if just 50%, 20% of the men in the world did this, we would have radically different organizations. So men, we need you in more ways than one. Share sisterhood. I mean, if men would join this and you let me know, Oscar, I want to get men signed up because you all are sorely needed in this work. And I fully agree with you, and I want to get men signed up as well, because as again, as I, as I say about racism, right, it's not up to Black people to solve racism because we didn't create it. Likewise, with sexism, it's not, 
it's not up to women to solve it because women didn't create sexism. <laughs> and so as we come to a close, I want, I want to give you the opportunity to, to tell us why is shared sisterhood and antidote. And notice I didn't say it's the antidote because she specifically write in the book, right? Like there are several different possibilities and other ways in which to push this work forward. But I want to give you an opportunity to share why it's an antidote. Thank you. I think it's a radically optimistic approach that builds on levels of analysis. It starts with the individual, us being honest and introspective with ourselves. And then it really says, let's foster true connection, authentic connection with people who are different than us, where we center the value of equity, where we don't run away from conflict, where we actually use that conflict in our relationship as a way to build layers upon layers of a bridge. And then the cool thing there is no one person is expected to do this alone. Shared Sisterhood says, come together, link arms, focus on the system. Not just, don't just tell me I need to speak up or improve my public speaking skills or get more quantitative skills. No, look at your recruiting process and find out why we keep having these disparate outcomes. That's why Shared Sisterhood is an antidote because it addresses the individual, it addresses authentic connections, and it addresses the systems. It addresses hearts and minds. It's not just, you know, I think many DEI initiatives fail because leaders are saying things like, let's recruit more, but they don't even know where they stand relative to those ideas. This is an opportunity. I think it's a historic opportunity for people to really delve into who they say they are, who they actually are be transparent about that, and then work together to dismantle these workplace inequities. Thank you so much for that. And so you opened the book talking about how you didn't necessarily identify with feminism because you felt that it ignored your Blackness. And after, you know, doing this work of digging and bridging and, and have this really, really wonderful book, I'm curious, what's your take now? Do you call yourself a feminist? I do say that I'm a feminist who attacks anti-Blackness. I have to, you know, because... Feminists should connote that, but sometimes in certain circles, it's ignored. So like you said at the onset, I'm the one raising my hand and saying, I'm a feminist, but we're going to talk about anti-Blackness too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Opie, for joining me in the guest chair today to talk about your and Dr. Beth Ann Livingston's new book, Shared Sisterhood. This is such a gift to the world, and I encourage all my listeners and supporters out there to buy three one for home, one for work, and one to give to a friend, because we all need to learn how to dig and bridge so that we can make this a more just and inclusive world. I wish you continued success and blessings. Oscar, thank you so much for having me. This, this has been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, The PhD Project. Please support their mission by donating to The PhD Project. And if you're interested in a PhD in business, you can find more information on their website by visiting www.phdproject.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. 
Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Mary. Until next time, peace and love.